0: The following message is from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, go to trinitygracesa.org. Well, before we look at God's Word together tonight, let's go before His presence and bring our requests to Him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are here tonight to be reminded and to reflect upon Your great love for us. You created us to relate with you and to, with one another in love. And even though we've decided not to love you, even though we've chosen sin and have turned our backs on you, you have never stopped loving us. And we're reminded tonight just how far you're willing to go in order to win us back, in order to rescue us, in order to bring us back into your love. Lord Jesus, your life, your death, and resurrection is the way that we've been rescued the marvelous way that you've chosen to reconcile us back to your loving presence in our lives and as we reflect upon and remember what it costs to win us back we pray that you would encourage us that we would respond to your love with humble worship genuine thankfulness for your great mercy and grace in our lives holy spirit we have you tonight in full measure You've been sent from God the Father and God the Son to show us the wonder of salvation, to magnify Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection. And we ask tonight that you would continue to magnify him, continue to point our heart's eyes towards him. Lord God, we confess as your people tonight that the Father's love is deep, that Christ's wounds have paid our ransom, and that the Spirit has given us new life. And we praise you for such a marvelous salvation. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible tonight, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. Tonight we've had the chance to read aloud the passion narrative according to the gospel of Luke, following along with his account of Christ's arrest and trial and crucifixion. And after walking this earth for approximately 33 years, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one that we believe to be fully man and fully God, finally accomplishes what he came to do. And that's what we're remembering tonight. What we've read tonight is really, it's, it's a dark and a somber portion of the scriptures, yet it's the culmination, it's the pinnacle of God's love for this broken world. It's important to remember that Jesus was not primarily driven to the cross by duty or by obligation or by burden. It's love that drove Jesus to where we read about him, find him tonight. He was driven by love to give up his life for us. God had lost something. He had lost you and me due to sin, And as we see from Scripture, God will do whatever it takes in order to recapture what he lost. We see to what depths he's willing to go tonight as we look back at a portion that we've already read once, but I'm going to read it again for us tonight from Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. You follow along as I read. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus, and when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals.' one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, "'Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.' And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, "'He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one.' And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, "'If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself.' There was also an inscription over him that read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man this man has done nothing wrong. And He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he wants us to know him and because he loves us. Some of you know that I attended graduate school in St. Louis, Missouri, at our denominational seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, and Those three years that we spent in St. Louis were so enjoyable and formative for me as a person and for us as a family. It's really rare and it's an expensive treat to get the opportunity to spend three whole years really fully engaged, devoting the majority of your time to studying theology in the Bible and counseling. I remember being there as a new student and being surrounded by my new classmates. We had descended upon St. Louis from a number of different areas of the country, and I remember how excited we were to be there and to get started. Me and my classmates, we had big dreams. We had dreams about what God would do through us as we served the church. We had big dreams about how God would shape and mold us over the coming three to four years that we spent studying there. We also had big dreams and expectations for what we would be studying. And as we all got settled into our new home and got to know each other a little bit that first week, most of us could not wait for classes to begin. After all, you don't go to a place like that unless you're excited to study what you're going to study unless you're excited to sink your teeth into some systematic theology and some Old Testament history and Greek and Hebrew and soteriology and pneumatology and eschatology. Even those words make it sound important and impressive, right? Well, you can understand how disappointed this group of aspiring theologians and world changers were when one of our first classes consisted of a professor spending the first few months covering the basic of gospel dynamics. Stuff you learned in Sunday school as a child, he spent a whole semester going back over. I remember sitting in class for what seemed like a whole semester because it was, discussing what the professor labeled as the great exchange taking us to Bible passages and trying to impress upon us the importance that Jesus took our sinfulness upon himself and in exchange, we got his perfect righteousness. Teaching that Jesus on the cross got what we deserved as sinners, it was credited to his account, our sin was, and we get what his perfect life merited, credited to our account. In one of our classes, that, was what we covered over the whole first semester. And boy, you should have seen how upset we were as students. Walking away from that class, talking about the professor, we couldn't believe it. Our professor was treating us like baby Christians. Why was he covering the most basic of fundamentals, we thought? We were way past that after all. I mean, we had moved our families and left our homes and spent our life savings to come and study the deep truths of Christianity. But I've since come to really appreciate this professor and what he was doing. He didn't assume we really knew and believed and lived out this simple gospel. In fact, he assumed that we hadn't yet fully grasped it. He assumed that it takes a lifetime to begin to scratch the surface of the simple beauty of the gospel, the great exchange. And as I get older, the more I hope I never move away from the basic truths of the gospel. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He's a little further down the road than I am as a believer. But he says this in his book, The Christian Life. When I first became involved in teaching God's word, and he says it in a Scottish accent, which is amazing. He says, I tended to assume that one of the great needs of Christians is to be instructed in the deeper truths of the gospel. It was not long before experience of my own life and observation of others' lives taught me how mistaken I had been. I began to see that, in fact, the deeper truths, if there are such things are really the old basic truths of the gospel. Well, tonight in our passage, we are reminded of the old basic truth of the gospel. It's why Friday is called good. Because Jesus comes and he takes the punishment that you and I deserve so that we can receive the benefits and the riches that he deserves. It's what my professor called the great exchange. And if it isn't deep in our bones as followers of Jesus then nothing else matters much. This is what we've got to grasp. What we see in our passage is that Jesus, even while approaching the last minutes of his life, I don't know what that's gonna look like in my own life, but I would imagine my mind will be taken to a hundred different places. But we've got Jesus here in the final minutes of his life and he is set on loving people and continuing to offer the free gift of salvation, even to a person who had done nothing to earn it up to this point to a person who would have no time left on earth to go back out and demonstrate his gratitude and his obedience for the gift that Jesus was giving him. It's amazing as you think about what we read in this historical account. Two robbers who have likely been held for some time waiting their execution by the Roman government the date for their execution had been set for the crime they committed and they find themselves crucified on either side of a prophet from Nazareth who was making claims that were disrupting the religious and the political equilibrium of the day. It's likely that the authorities rushed Christ's execution so that they could get it over with in the same day that these two robbers were scheduled to be executed, trying to get this past them as quickly as possible, especially with the Passover feast approaching in the coming day. And we see in our passage that Jesus is treated just like one of these criminals, as a transgressor. He's numbered with them. At the end of his life, he's right in the middle of thieves and robbers. Dying the death of a convicted criminal. Jesus is getting what criminals and thieves deserved. And for the six hours or so that Jesus hung on the cross, he was being ridiculed and mocked, our passage in Luke 23 says. By the crowd, by the rulers, by the soldiers, by the criminals that were crucified with him, they all mocked and jeered Jesus. Imploring him to save himself. They didn't understand that Jesus was on the cross to save others, not to save himself. The Romans and the religious leaders thought that they were subduing Jesus, that they were conquering this king, but instead he was subduing them by his death on the cross, gaining a victory for the entire world. And I was thinking about this passage this morning, and I know it's so easy for us to look at the crowds and the rulers and the soldiers and the criminals. And they're jeering and mocking Jesus. And it's so easy to condemn them for their unbelief. But you've got to understand that they were simply in the moment. We've got to stop and ask, would we have done better? Would we have done better if we were living in the moment, not knowing what we know now about Jesus? After all, Jesus looked completely defeated in that moment. He had no majesty that we should be attracted to him. He he had made outrageous claims. He was being mocked with a sign above the cross that was written in the three common languages of the day, declaring him to be king of the Jews in a sarcastic manner. And if placed in the position, it's hard to imagine anything about this scene that would have kept me and you from joining in with the jeers and the mocking. The only thing that could have kept us from joining our voices with the mockers would have been the Spirit's work in our hearts. And it's that work that we see happening in one of these criminals' hearts in this passage. Both Matthew and Mark, it's interesting, record that at one point, both of these criminals were mocking and jeering Jesus from the cross. And it leads us to believe that Luke is recording that at some point, one of these criminals stops his mocking and stops his jeering. His heart is softened. He sees Jesus hanging beside him on the cross. He sees his beauty and his offer of salvation, and he has an end-of-life conversion. Literally in the last minutes of his life. And nothing could explain this change from the both robbers mocking and jeering Jesus, and then one of them turning and recognizing his beauty except for the Spirit's work in this criminal's heart. In verse 41, we get one of the simplest, most clear confessions in all of the Bible when this criminal, and you got to think about it, he raises himself against the hard wood. When you're crucified like Jesus was in these two criminals, in order to speak and get breath, you had to raise yourself so you could inhale. Inhale. And he raises himself on the cross and uses that breath, that precious, costly breath, so that he can say, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And it seems so simple, almost too simple. But that's all this man needed. In this passage, we see both Jesus and the criminal getting what they don't deserve. Both men, two men, getting what they don't deserve. What Jesus deserved was all honor, all glory, all praise. What Jesus deserved was to be exalted and worshiped for all eternity. What Jesus deserved was admiration and thankfulness for all he had done. But what he gets instead is the death of a common criminal. He gets mocked and jeered. He suffers both physically and even more so spiritually on that Good Friday. What the criminal deserved was death. He deserved separation from God. He deserved the mocking and the jeering that he was receiving from the society that he had violated with his crimes. He deserved abandonment and condemnation, but what he gets is paradise. What he gets is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. What he gets is complete forgiveness and acceptance without having done anything to earn it. In this passage, it's a small picture of how Jesus relates with each one of us. Jesus gets what we merit. You know, we do merit something. What we merit with our actions is actually the condemnation and the wrath of God. And we in turn get what Jesus merits with his life and his perfect obedience. We get what he merits, which is acceptance and approval from God. And it's what my professor spent a whole semester teaching us about the great exchange. And it's the hope we remember and celebrate this Good Friday. There's only one reason that Jesus should identify with us, that he should be there in the middle of two criminals, only one reason why he should make such an exchange on our behalf, only one reason that makes any sense, and it's because God loved us and he wanted us back. And he comes and he makes that exchange happen. Paul describes this great exchange in a number of different ways, but nowhere more beautifully than 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It'd be a verse worth memorizing and putting on your heart. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As I was reflecting on that seminary class a few days ago with some of my classmates that I'm in a text chain with, One of my friends said this about the simplicity and the beauty of those gospel lectures from that professor. He said this, I just want to say I needed that class. Coming out of a pretty graceless church culture that made you question whether or not you were a Christian every sermon for three years, I really needed it. I remember crying often in that class. I couldn't believe the good news was that good. We need to be constantly reminded and encouraged by the great exchange. This is the basic teaching of the gospel. That Jesus took our sin upon himself and he gave us his righteousness. And it's this truth that Paul spends so much time reminding people throughout his ministry of. Throughout his letter to the Romans and the Corinthians, he constantly asks, if you go and read it, you'll see it. He constantly asks, do you not know? Do you not remember? Over and over again, Paul appeals to what these Christians ought to have known, but had either forgotten or never learned. That Jesus came to take our sin upon himself so that he might give us his righteousness. Jesus got what we deserved, and we get what he deserves. And this is what Paul calls a scandal. He calls it a scandal in Corinthians. He calls it foolishness to the world. But to us, on this Good Friday, it's the power and the majesty and the glory of God. It's our one true hope that he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God and experience all the benefits that Jesus earned with his death on the cross. And that is such good news for us tonight. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you tonight for this great exchange that we're remembering even now for the way that you came and you lived the perfect life meriting approval and acceptance from God the Father so that you might give that to us and take upon yourself what we had merited, condemnation and wrath. We thank you that your justice was perfectly satisfied this day, two thousand some odd years ago, and that we have been fully received because of Christ's work on the cross, which we remember tonight. We pray that you would help our hearts to soak in that tonight as we look forward to your stamp of victory this Sunday, the resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.